Brent, uh, what is your favorite remediated mine effluent based beer? <laughs> well, now it's Coors Light. I guess I did not know that until uh, Patrick mentioned that. <laughs> Hello and welcome to the Energy Strong podcast presented by SPL. My name is Patrick Schauer. I'm joined once again by the CEO of Artemis Energy, Kat Galloway. Kat, how are you doing? Doing great today. I'm excited to talk about produced water, a new topic for uh, for today's session. That's right. I'm excited as well. This is a topic that's uh, near and dear to my heart. But also joining us, we have the director of ESG from SPL, Andrew Parker. How are you, Andrew? Good. I'm looking forward to being the student today because I know very little about produced water. So I'm looking forward to you uh, leading the line of questioning today, Patrick. Well, I'm looking forward to it as well. Produced water is a topic that I love talking about. It's it's something that I think we need uh, a lot of people to be more aware of and something that I think uh, is really critical to how this industry operates and how we are going to continue operating in an environmentally conscious way into the future. Well, I'm happy we get to bring a little more attention to the topic of produced water because I think in the media and kind of our day-to-day lives, we hear a lot about climate change, greenhouse gases, um, but produced water has just as big, if not maybe a bigger role to play, I think, long-term in some of these uh, oil plays like the Permian where water is very scarce. Absolutely. We'll get into all of that and and plenty more, I'm sure. Uh, this is a topic we could have hours of conversation on uh, as, as we go down the road. <laughs> but um, we'll, we'll leave it at that for now, and we'll get right into our conversation with Brent right after this. We will be right back to the Energy Strong podcast, but today's episode is brought to us by Bulwark FR. For over 50 years, Bulwark has served as the relentless protector of those who power the world. In that time, they have pioneered every breakthrough in flame-resistant apparel and tirelessly championed the workers of oil, gas, and electric utilities. Bulwark doesn't just make FR, they are FR. And now with their newfound freedom, they get to do it in a bigger, better, and bolder way. Learn more at www.bulwark.com. That's www.bulwark.com. And now, back to the show. All right. Well, I'm really excited to welcome our next guest to the podcast here today. Brent Halderson is the president of Redox and the vice president of the Produced Water Society. We're going to have an interesting conversation about produced water, something that's near and dear to my heart, something I've been working in uh, for pretty much my whole career. And I've actually had the pleasure of working with Brent or attempting to work with Brent multiple times over that career. We've never actually gotten a project off the ground, but hopefully we can have a nice conversation here about the state of produced water in the country and kind of where we see things going into the future. So Brent, thanks for joining us. Yeah, it's my pleasure, Patrick. Brent, well, first of all, can you tell us a little bit about the Produced Water Society and what you guys are doing right now? Yeah, the Produced Water Society is a a group of professionals working in the industry, so it's very hands-on. And uh, the reason I joined it, Patrick, is it's it's collaborative. You get to work with a bunch of, uh, you know, there's energy producers, but there's also treatment companies. Uh, There are regulators that attend. And uh, we're just trying to have a forum where we can share ideas and uh, create better solutions. 
it's kind of an interesting dynamic because you get people with an offshore background, you get people that are onshore, you get uh, international uh, representation. And uh, yeah, I think it's just a great way for us to, to, to share ideas. And if we don't do this, uh, I find that we keep learning the same lessons over and over again by uh, repeating the same mistakes often. So Brent, can you just take a little step back here too, and, and let's talk about you know, what is produced water? Where does it come from? And, and when you talk about cleaning it, what is it that we're doing to get water to a usable quality, either for oil and gas use within frack, uh, reuse and fracking again, or for reuse outside of the industry? So what is it, where does it come from, and what is it that we're cleaning it up and removing? Sure, that's a good question. And, and you're right, it's always best to go back to first principles because there's a lot of misconception about what produced water really is. I mean, if you Google frack and water, you will get scared to death with all of the uh, negative imagery that's out there. So in my head, really, the, the term we picked for produced water is the exact right term because it is a resource. It's primarily native formation water that is produced right alongside the hydrocarbon. Uh, now, Yes, there is some water that goes in during the frack that comes back. So you, you put an initial frack supply of water down, you get flow back. We're not very original in our terminology. The water that flows back is called flow back. But produced water is predominantly that very old seawater that has coexisted with the, the oil and gas resource for a very long period of time. Uh, and it just happens to come out with the oil or the gas. Uh, and again, it depends on the rock formation. But what I get excited about with produced water is there's a negative connotation to it because it's, it's traditionally been viewed as a waste, but it's really an entirely new water source that has hitherto not been available for our use. And I think we really need to change the narrative because I view produced water is a valuable commodity. Yes, the economics are much harder to make work than they are for oil and gas, obviously. But if we start to re refer to this produced water as a third commodity, so instead of oil and gas wells with produced water waste, if we start saying, you know what, we have oil, gas, and water wells, let's find a way to make this water usable. Um, I mean, the Permian basins, it, a tremendous example, and it's where I spend a lot of my time, as I'm sure everyone is aware, the Permian Basin is in the middle of a desert. And the idea of unlocking a brand new water source and making it usable for something like irrigation, or even even if it doesn't go for irrigation, let's say it goes for um, for discharge, but it allows us to minimize or even eliminate the use of fresh water for oil and gas activity, I think it has a... a tremendous net benefit to the environment. Well, Brent, tell us, um, what are some of the newer technologies or operating concepts that are on the leading edge of produced water management nowadays? Sure. Well, the way I look at it, Kat, the, um, the energy industry, especially the U.S. domestic industry, has embraced water recycle. So really, it, in a remarkably short period of time, really over the 15-ish years I've been doing this, 
it went from almost unheard of to, uh, it's too expensive to, uh, you know, and then we started to zero in on lesser and lesser treatment and got more and more cost effective. So really, if I look at what's going on today, clean brine recycle is embraced by the industry. It is often the cheapest, lowest cost way to manage your water. If you can take your waste and, and reuse that for frac supply, that's tremendous. So when we look at the technology that's being used in that space, it's fairly simple technology. There's not a lot of really radically new ideas. Um, but if I, if I want to look at what's cutting edge right now, the, the, kind of the next frontier where we're trying to get to is reuse outside of oil and gas. So reuse within oil and gas is great. Um, the energy industry can use clean brine. They don't need a very high quality product, but if I want to repurpose that water so that it can be used for agriculture or some other purpose outside of oil and gas, that is sort of the Holy grail. Um, technically it can be done. Like Patrick said, him and I worked on a, a several projects where we were looking at treating to fresh water for discharge or, um, irrigation, um, but that's where I get excited because I think that's the next frontier, um, the other reason I'm looking for that solution is reuse within the oil field is wonderful, but when fracking stops, the need for recycled water stops. So it's like this musical chairs. We get going, we're really busy, and then there's a big downturn in the industry, and all of a sudden we stop fracking, we stop recycling, I hit a wall. I mean, I've done this like five times now, where imagine if I can repurpose for use outside of the oil field, then when the drilling stops, I still have need for my product. So it would be similar to a disposal well, when, when the fracking stops, you still need disposal, right? There's still produced water coming. Well, we really need that, that next generation of technologies that will allow us to treat it uh, to a much higher spec. So that's where I think you see a lot of the cutting edge is looking at technologies that can uh, treat water, uh, distill it down to, you know, uh, basically drinking water quality. What are the challenges to treating produced water? I mean, why is it not as simple as, you know, we have sewer water that goes to a water treatment plant and they clean it up and send it back down to our house? Why is it so difficult to treat this water? <laughs> well... <laughs> I could probably spend the next two hours answering that question, but I'm going to, I'm going to just hit the highlights. If, if you don't know anything about produced water, what makes it so very challenging is the fact that it is incredibly variable. It changes hour by hour, day by day, well by well. So if you go and you collect a sample of produced water, that is a snapshot in time, but it doesn't tell you the whole picture. Uh, the variability of the produced water is is probably its highest challenge. It is typically very high chloride, much saltier than seawater. Um, if and it ranges all over the place again, which is is why it's so difficult to define. But if I look at the Permian Basin, for example, the total dissolved solids in the Permian probably average 100 to 150 thousand milligrams per liter. Of total dissolved solids, which is is far more saline than the ocean. Um, you go up into the Marcellus, where where Patrick and I were working previously. I mean, some of that water it's up over two hundred thousand milligrams per liter TDS. So those are two high TDS examples. 
And then you can also look at areas like Wyoming, which uh, have relatively low TDS. It might be 15,000 milligrams per liter TDS. So the amount of dissolved solids or salt really drives what type of treatment system you can economically put in if your goal is to treat all the way to freshwater. The other challenge in there, Brent, is scale too, right? When you're talking about municipal wastewater treatment, you're taking all of the water from a large municipal area, you're bringing it to a centralized location, and you are treating it consistently all day, every day. So the capital that you invest in that treatment system is spread out over a 20, 30, 40-year lifetime over all of the people that are using that water. When you're talking about treating produced water, you were talking about you know, a large volume of water, but over a short period of time and moving around the field because it's not being produced in the same location all the time. So the struggle that we often have in doing produced water treatment is getting the right scale of treatment at the right location in the right time and doing that cost effectively. So that is one of the challenges that that is really um, driving the cost in in the space right now, especially on some of those more uh, advanced treatments, like you said, trying to treat to freshwater quality, to get enough water and treat it at enough scale to make that economical is is one of the biggest challenges right now. It's not a technology thing. The technology exists to do the treatment to get to freshwater quality. We have technologies that have been proven through industries. Uh, outside of oil and gas, I mean, my background prior to oil and gas is I worked in mine water treatment. And, you know, you might be surprised living in Colorado to know that every time you open up a, a Coors Light, you were drinking a large portion of treated mine water effluent because the rivers that come out of the out of the mountains from from the the eastern slope of Colorado are heavily impacted by old mining. So, you know, but but nobody... I mean, I would go and I would drink water straight out of that stream because I trust that the treatment that goes into it is is good and it works. And so that technology exists, and we just have to deploy it well in the oil field. You did just kill Colorado beer for me. <laughs> uh, Thanks, Patrick. Well, listen, you're exactly right, Patrick. I, I can tell you a little story about that. Um, going back to the early days of the Barnett, um, we were treating to freshwater we were working for Devon Energy at that time. This was uh, 2004 to 2014, and we were working on a handshake. You know, we're a small company, um, but no large company in their right mind would deploy millions of dollars of equipment on a handshake. Like, it, it just is not done. And I'll never forget, GE Water came into the Barnett, and uh, they said they were going to build these 30,000 barrel-a-day evaporator treatment plants, and uh, everything looked kind of neat. Uh, and then they turned around and said, we want a, I think they said, a 11 or 12-year take-or-pay contract. And, I mean, the laughter broke out in the room because the upstream oil and gas producers at that time, four months was like a long window. Like, don't, don't be asking me for a one-year contract. And, good Lord, if you're asking me for a 12-year contract, you have no idea how our industry works. And so to your point, the, the technology was there, but the economics and making a model that would work was almost impossible. And it, it is getting better now, but uh, it's still a challenge. So as you look at the logistics part of it, understanding that as you're working through a field, your flow is going to come up in certain areas and then go back down. 
Um, are these technologies mostly portable or are they stationary? Yeah, Kat, that is a great question. And there has been uh, a real uh, huge step forward in our industry over the last five years, which is the advent of water midstream. So to your point, when you look at hydraulic fracturing out in the middle of nowhere, uh, it's an intensive one-time use of water in a geographic area, and then you go away. So if you need, I'm going to, I'm just going to pick round numbers. Let's say you're doing a frack and it's 700,000 barrels for this frack. Are you going to build a great big, large pipe to get the water there for the frack, knowing that when you're all done, that well might only produce, you know, several hundred barrels a day. It doesn't make sense. The, the infrastructure is the hardest piece of the puzzle. So and it's been the missing piece of the puzzle up, up until around 2015. So along comes water midstream. And what water midstream is doing is effectively building a hydrovascular network throughout the oil play. So it's a third party going in and building large trunk lines that can handle multiple producers' water. And the beauty of it from a recycle perspective is... Now I don't have to get all the way to disposal or I don't have to source my fresh water all the way from the source. All I have to do is get to and from the trunk line. And to answer your question on mobile versus centralized, it's always been a question. But you can imagine, especially on advanced treatment, the higher the flow rate, the lower your cost per barrel because you get economies of scale. So this is this is a rapidly changing area. Now that we have water midstream, I can tell you that five years ago, I was building 10,000 barrel a day treatment systems. I got really excited when we started doing like 30,000 barrel a day treatment systems. I read in the news this morning that Breakwater, which is one of the water midstream companies in the Permian, just announced a 200,000 barrel a day recycle facility. So the reason they can go such large volume is they're tied into these water midstream pipelines that are moving hundreds of thousands of barrels a day of water. Water availability is no longer an issue. I can build larger facilities. The other thing that I love about water midstream is I, I told you at the beginning when, when Patrick was asking what produced water is, well, it is different from well to well day by day. But when you aggregate hundreds of wells into a common pipeline, you start to get a much more stable composition of that produced water. It's much more homogenous because it's all mixed together. So it's actually easier to treat because the the water has been uh, well mixed and uh, is more field representative than individually well representative if it were all trucked, if that makes sense. Absolutely. And, and so I do a lot of air permitting and compliance. And, and from my perspective, when we're dealing with produced water in an air permit, we assume that it's got a certain percentage of, of volatile organic compounds that are still in it, right? So we typically assume 1% of produced water is VOC. And so the emissions that we're dealing with, particularly on the loading side, I've definitely seen a lot more facilities where instead of truck loading, you know, bringing in the big big trucks to empty the tanks and take it off, um, we are seeing more um, upstream and midstream facilities that are piping it out. And if we can pipe out that produced water, we're reducing our emissions because we're not having as many trucks coming in. 
um, which have emissions from the trucks. And we're also reducing truck traffic. So that helps roads and dust as well. So I love to see projects where we're taking a multimodal approach and we're addressing, you know, water scarcity availability, but we're also reducing emissions. Exactly. And, and Kat, there, so you, you hit on a couple of great advantages, uh, less wear and tear on the roads, uh, more safety on the roads. You're not having water haulers running around. Um, but one that people often forget, and especially I keep going back to the Permian Basin because it's really where the majority of the rigs are in the U.S., but we have a drought in Texas probably every five years, and I can't tell you how frustrating it is for me that people forget that. Every time a drought ends, people think, well, God, that was bad. Uh, and then they go back to life as usual and and are wasteful of their water and don't realize that this drought is cyclical and has been for the last, you know, since we've been keeping records. But the most drought-resistant source of water in the Permian Basin is produced water. So it shouldn't be your last choice. It should be your first choice. Because in time of drought, yeah, you're not going to find fresh water. The brackish water people will be fighting over. But the produced water is still going to be there. And... Um, and, and it takes away a lot of uh, the risk. Uh, traditionally, when we were fracking with freshwater or groundwater, water availability was probably the biggest risk that we had to completing that well. Um, but if you're, if you're sourcing your water from produced water, that risk goes away entirely. And um, yeah, uh, the, the other thing that you mentioned, Kat, uh, we talk about evaporation and air permit. I'm glad you brought that up. Uh, when I talk about evaporators, I want to make it clear. I'm talking about we, we boil the produced water, we evaporate the steam, and then we recondense it, and we have this pure distilled water. Unfortunately, it's a horrible term because um, it's really a distiller, not an evaporator, but it's been called an evaporator for so long. But now there are these systems, and I'm sure you've seen them, where they're basically burning gas and evaporating produced water to the atmosphere. I really don't like those <laughs> because to me, it's like, okay, you're, you're solving a water problem, but you're creating an air problem because you're basically taking all these, this issue and you're burning the hell out of it at a very horrible energy. Uh, like it, it's, it's not cost-effective on energy, but people will say, well, gas is cheap. Gas is free while well, they're burning it and, and putting a lot of that, including the VOCs and everything up into the air. Um, I think that is a marginal practice at best. I mean, there may be areas where it makes sense, but there has been a renewed interest in air emissions in the oil field. And I think a lot of people are looking at air a lot harder than we used to in the past. So, um, to your point, I, I think that VOC tracking, if you can do it in a larger plant, larger volume, highly automated, where you're continuously monitoring, I think you're going to have much lower overall air emissions than you would if you had a whole bunch of small plants all doing their own thing. So this is a good segue to something we've talked about, Brent. You mentioned air emissions, and I think at least publicly, air emissions, climate change, that kind of gets all the play right now. But you mentioned drought, and I think when you think about water resources, especially in the West, places like Colorado, West Texas, North Dakota, that have arid environments, I think produced water arguably will become a bigger focal point for many reasons. And we had a few weeks ago, we had uh, Thomas Locum. He was with uh, an organization that's plugging abandoning wells. And 
he's doing it because there's not a lot of kind of government or uh, regulatory uh, interest in that uh, plug and abandonment idea. I'm curious what type of play, you know, uh, the Texas Railroad Commission, the EPA, federal government, what kind of resources, attention and effort are agencies like that putting to helping solve the produced water problem? Yeah, no, listen, that's a great question, Andrew. And, um, you know, our industry has been on the defensive for a very long time because, and, and, and part of it, it, it's a mess of our own creation because we have traditionally treated produced water as a waste or a byproduct. And it's been seen that way. It's been handled that way. It's a nuisance. It's a cost. People don't look at it as an opportunity and to your point, I think that is changing and people are saying, hey, this is brand new water. This can be repurposed. This could really help us. Uh, new Mexico is a good example. I'm on the New Mexico Produced Water Recycling Consortium. New Mexico is a very, very blue state. They've got a lot of people that are anti-oil and gas, but they recognize that, hey, if something beneficial can be done with this water, we need to have a look at this. So you ask how these uh, agencies can get involved. Well, the the purpose of the New Mexico Produced Water Recycling Consortium, I think I got that right. It's it's a really long acronym. Um, But the idea is to to basically evaluate where the water could be beneficially reused, what value it needs to be, look at the logistics. Um, They also are going to make recommendations on what type of permitting uh, would be needed to make this uh, feasible. So it's been really enjoyable serving on that committee. And then Texas recently, so not to be outdone, they saw New Mexico doing this and and Texas just formed the Texas Produced Water Recycling Consortium. Literally just got started a few months ago. They are not going to compete with New Mexico. Basically what they've agreed to do is let's share ideas. So Texas is going to pilot some systems, come up with ideas. New Mexico is going to Um, you know, they're already running a number of pilots. They're going to share and present their ideas. And from a federal perspective, um, I've actually been quite impressed with the EPA because I think, you know, at first they were looking at coming in and doing a bunch of enforcement actions and they realized they really didn't understand oil and gas. And, uh, So they've sort of stepped back and they they started asking these questions like, what can be done? And they've actually been willing to listen, which has been very encouraging. Um, The other thing that I'm I'm encouraged by at the federal level is like the DOE, they do these challenges where they'll basically do a technology challenge. They They did one recently. It was the Solar Desalination Prize. So they basically said, hey, we want you to inno- we want to see innovations that utilize solar for desalination. Here's a million-dollar prize. Go out there and come up with ideas and innovate. And that's what Americans do best. You know, you, you throw a challenge out there, and then you let people innovate. I think that's a wonderful thing that the government can be doing to incentivize innovation as opposed to trying to just add more and more red tape and rules. Um, Another thing that uh, they did, uh, the the DOE, um, it's a Bureau of Land Management, I believe. Hopefully I've got all these groups right. But they, they built a facility in Alamogordo, New Mexico. Uh, and if you want to Google that, it's Alamo, just like the Alamo, and then G-O-R-D-O. And it's it, it, uh, the, my other acronyms were long, Andrew. This one, 
I'm, I swear it's the worst acronym I've ne ever heard. It's, it's Bigendorf. Uh, it's Brackish Groundwater National Desalination Research Facility. It's such a mouthful that nobody can say it, so everyone calls it Bigendorf. But they built this state-of-the-art facility in this small town in New Mexico where if you have any technology for advanced desalination. So this could be RO reject, this could be groundwater, this could be produced water, this can even be water with PFOS in it. Um, you can bring that technology to this facility. They, they have a lab there and they facilitate testing and, and you getting third-party verification of your, your treatment. I think that that type of um, support is invaluable to young, struggling companies that are trying to develop technology in this space. Yeah, Brent, that's really exciting to see support from a federal and a state level for development of technologies. One thing that I am, am curious about is in, in Texas, energy companies are pretty supportive of recycling. They use it all the time and they understand that recycled produced water is an important so source of supply for them. In other states, and in particular, I'm thinking of Colorado because I spend a lot of my time here, um, producers, especially in the DJ Basin, are a lot more hesitant to use recycled water in their completions. And there was traditionally a reluctance about whether or not that produced water would cause any impairment to the oil production of the well. And I think some of that reluctance is going away, but in the DJ Basin, recycling numbers are nowhere near what they are in Texas, right? If if an operator in the DJ Basin is recycling 20% of their frack, then they're doing good in the DJ Basin. And in Texas, you have companies that are doing 100% recycled fracks all day, every day. So do you see any... What do you what do you see as the best way to kind of push through any reluctance on an oil company's side to embrace recycling uh, for those areas of the country that aren't fully on board with it yet? Sure. Well, um, you bring up a great point, Patrick. And one thing I will say is uh, I don't believe it has anything to do with a certain region being less concerned about the environment, for example. I think there used to be that insinuation. We saw it in Texas a lot because people up in the Marcellus were doing, you know, 100% recycle and they'd come to Texas and say, hey, you're only doing 15, 20%. What's wrong with you? You don't care about the environment. But it's a much bigger and more challenging puzzle than that. And I'll, I'll use that example. Um, so up in the Marcellus, it's a dry shale you're more familiar with it than anyone patrick but um you know the the marcellus you put 100 parts down you might only get 15 back for example so um because of that it's very easy to take that waste and then dilute it and bury it into your next frack um but other plays net generate water so the permian's a good example you put one part down you might get you know four or five parts in addition back so Making the water balance work is a real challenge. And um, so from area to area, there has been a hesitance in the past based on downhole scaling concerns, like you're talking about, Patrick, especially if there's things like, you know, clays and clay swelling are an issue, then I think some producers are hesitant. Uh, well, they might be hesitant to use fresh water in, in a clay swelling scenario, but um, 
even taking somebody else's wastewater and putting it into your well. At first, companies are hesitant. But what we have found, and this is often the case, is they'll start out with a very low blend. They might do 10 or 20% recycled, blended into 80 or 90% fresh or brackish. And then that well worked out great. So on the next one, they might up their recycle to 30% and then 40%. And I've worked with a number of customers that have done this. And man, after a year, they're ramped up to your point. They're doing 100% and they're not seeing any impairment in their fracks. Um, I'm not saying I'm not a downhole expert, so I'm, I'm not going to say that that is always the case. But the, the other thing that's made it easier is years ago, there was a lot of gel fracks and hybrid fracks. And a lot of the areas we're working in now, people are doing, for the most part, simple slip water fracks. So the downhole compatibility issues with gels and everything have really, by and large, gone away. It, you know, 10 years ago, if I asked 10 people in a room what kind of water they wanted, I would get 10 radically different answers. Okay, because people are concerned about barium, people are concerned about um, boron, people are concerned about um, sulfate scale, people are concerned about hardness, you name it. Well, now, if I go into a room full of 10 people today, generally people aren't that concerned about downhole scaling issues. Um, they're more concerned about topside issues. If I store this water in a pit and it's got high solids, then you know, I'm going to have to clean out that pit and that's going to be very expensive. That's the, that's the, the simple one. The other thing is if I allow a bunch of solids in my pit, well then the solids are nutrient for bacteria growth. So even if I kill the bacteria going into that pit, but I let it sit for several months, the sludge in the bottom of the pit is going to breed new bacteria. So their concerns aren't so much the downhole concerns as they are the top hole storage type concerns. And again, Different areas are different, but but I think what you'll find in the Rockies is if they if they are starting to embrace recycle, just watch that trend, Patrick, and you'll see over time if they've tried 30%, well, let's try 40, let's try 50. And every single customer I've seen do that has has generally become very comfortable at increasing the amount of recycle all the way up to 100% with, with almost no detriment uh, that they can tell to their well performance. Looking into your crystal ball into the future, Brent, um, what do you see as some of the, the major accomplishments or, or milestones that we're going to set, that we're going to achieve in the next five to 10 years in the produced water field? Okay. Well, I love crystal balling, Kat. And um, I think, you know, we, we're treatment to freshwater to Patrick's point. It's not that it technically cannot be done. It's making the economics work. So what I'd really like to see are some long-term uh, projects where we're actually treating to a usable state for use outside of the oil gas, oil and gas industry. Where I love this is we can tie it into the water midstream. And a lot of the water midstream, basically what they're doing is they're aggregating volume that's going to disposal. So there might be 15, 20, 30 disposal wells tied in via pipeline now. If you want, if you ask what my ultimate crystal ball is, Kat, I'm like, I always used to think of a disposal well as we are permanently putting that water out of sight, out of mind. We're putting it very way deep down, gone forever. I've since re, re re uh, reevaluated my position on that. Now 
I would love to look at our disposal wells as our piggy banks. You know, we've been putting away produced water for decades. Well, if we can treat it cost effectively, who's to say we can't pull water out of those same formations? Um, I'm not saying it's going to be easy. Uh, right now, I, I can't make the economics work, but it's getting closer every day. And I'll give you an example. Uh, I was out on a pilot in the Permian a couple of weeks ago for a company called CCR. They're out of Frisco. It's Crystal Clearwater Resources. But what's really unique about their treatment system is it's using waste heat. So the energy is being driven off of a compressor station. So they're taking the engine exhaust and the gas compression uh, energy, and they're using that to drive treatment. And if we can co-locate large systems like that off of these water midstream pipelines, man, that to me would be just an absolute godsend. I mean, that, that would be the next generation that I would love to see us get to. Um, another blue sky thing we're always talking about is, uh, you know, recovery of precious metals and uh, value add products out of the produced water. Uh, there are a few companies I'm familiar with that are doing that. There's a company in Oklahoma called Iofina. They actually recover medical grade iodide from produced water. They've been doing that for many years. Um, and then I think, Patrick, you're familiar with Eureka Resources. They're, they're up in Williamsport, Pennsylvania. I mean, they go zero liquid discharge. Uh, they've been doing that for years. But what's really unique about Eureka is they've got this use the whole buffalo mentality where they're making food grade salt. And don't worry, it's not going into your food, but it meets food grade from the Marcellus. They are uh, recovering lithium. They are recovering methanol. They are recovering calcium chloride and they're recovering distilled water. So they, you know, on a small scale, what they've been able to make the economics work in North central Pennsylvania, I'd love to see people replicating that and making it work throughout the Rockies and, and the Permian and, and, uh, you know, all over North America. Yeah. And I think, I think to that point, Brent, the Permian basin has the potential down the road, five to 10 years from now to be seen, not only as the nation's leader in oil production, but the nation's leader in you know, clean water management and all these other byproduct productions that you can get out of the produced water, right? You know, just the amount of water that's being generated there and the opportunity to aggregate everything together and, and set up a treatment system there, um, you know, that's, that's where I would love to go set up a 200,000 barrel a day, you know, distillation system that's recovering metals and salts and, and do all of that in the Permian and then return all of that fresh water to the to the environment there and where you can use it for agriculture or you can use it for power generation or you can use it for name any other dozen things that aren't just tied to the energy sector anymore so it'd be great to see something happen in the ag sector right yeah because oil and gas and agriculture has such a complementary geography in the united states that it would be it would be great when you think of how water intensive ag is to figure out some kind of symbiotic relationship between the two. Obviously, getting anywhere near a food crop scares people, but uh, why not try cotton? Um, and and I think that's a good use for the distilled water. There, there's a lot of cotton in that area. But, you know, we have a 
responsibility, and this is what the New Mexico Produced Water Group is doing, is to evaluate all of the potential constituents to make sure there is no harmful, unintended consequences. Obviously, when we treated in the Barnett to freshwater, we did, uh, I believe it was 30 million barrels of produced water to a freshwater standard, but none of that was ever discharged. Back in, in the early days, most of the Barnett, they were primarily fracking with freshwater. So all of our distilled water went back into frac supply, um, which I was very proud of. I didn't really want to be discharging unless we needed to. But, um, but yeah, the, the idea of treating and using on cotton, I think, makes a lot of sense. So Brent, thank you very much. I, I appreciate you coming on and talking with us about all these things. It's a really exciting space to be working in right now. For me particularly, I think there's a lot of opportunities in produced water to really drive things towards a, a much more sustainable future for the energy industry and to show yet again, this is another way that the energy industry in the United States is leading the world on sustainable development and you know, we can we can recover additional critical resources out of the ground that aren't just the fossil fuels. Yeah, I agree, Patrick. And uh, and please do uh, check out the Produced Water Society. It's just producedwatersociety.com. Uh, one, I guess we'll call it a silver lining of COVID is, um, you know, our meetings always used to be face-to-face, great networking and so on. But now with, with COVID, a lot of people weren't able to travel. So our events now are hybrid, um, remote and in person. So if you want to check it out, but you're not sure you want to fly to Houston, I don't blame you. Um, try just, you know, go to a meeting, but uh, just zoom in and listen to some of the talks. Um, you know, we, the more people we get involved looking at this, I think the better we will all be off. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Brent. We really appreciate having you on the podcast. This is a great conversation and we look forward to having more into the future. We will be right back to the Energy Strong podcast, but I want to tell you about our sponsor, SPL. They offer end-to-end testing, measurement, and reporting solutions across the entire hydrocarbon value chain through cutting-edge technology, meticulous processes, and highly qualified personnel. SPL offers insights you can trust and act on. Check them out online at spl-inc.com. That's spl-inc.com. And now... Back to the show. Well, that's it for the Energy Strong podcast today. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you learned something about produced water today. It's a topic that's near and dear to my heart in particular, and I look forward to having more conversations about it as we go into the future. If you're interested in learning more, you can reach out to the Produced Water Society. Their information is going to be provided in the show notes. Also, please feel free to reach out to me directly on LinkedIn if you have any questions about produced water or any of the topics that we talked about today. I want to thank Bulwark FR for being a sponsor for our podcast right now and to SPL for helping us present this show. We couldn't do it without you guys. Thank you also to Andrew Parker and Kat Galloway. Hosting this show with you guys has been a lot of fun, and I really look forward to every time we do an interview. Please remember, as always, to rate and subscribe and leave comments anywhere that you listen. It really helps us out, know what we're doing that you guys like, that you don't like. Let us know about any topics that you would like to hear out into the future. And get in touch with us if you'd either like to sponsor the show or have any suggestions for some additional topics that we could talk about or guests that we could interview. 
Thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you next time. Brent, uh, what is your favorite remediated mine effluent based beer? <laughs> well, now it's Coors Light. I guess I did not know that until uh, Patrick mentioned that. <laughs>